I titled this morning's message, God's Purpose, Plan, and Promises. And we're in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 9, verses 14 to 33. This is actually our 28th study so far in the book of Romans. We're still in chapter 9, and we're still looking at Israel past. Remember, I've shared that chapter 9 is Israel past. Chapter 10 is Israel present day. And chapter 11 is going to be Israel future. All three of these chapters really are a way that Paul is using to describe still the righteousness of God that has been imparted to us. He's just now giving us this whole picture that is surrounding Jew and Gentile of how God has done that and how God is going to do it. Some of the truths that we looked at in this chapter in verses 6 to 13, we learned that being a Jew by descent will never get a Jew to heaven. It's not the fact that they've been born a Jew that gives them entrance into heaven. Resting in the law or in good works will never get a person to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, here's what you have to do. You have to receive by faith alone Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way to a right standing with God. You have to, if you disagree with that, you have to argue with God over it. But that's what I see in Scripture. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Paul addressed the question that the Romans and, and even many of us today, maybe we've had these questions, many people today have these questions, but does Israel's unbelief, does Israel rejecting Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah, does it mean the failure of God's promises to them? In other words, because they rejected Him, does that mean that God's going to retract the promises that he made to Israel? I say, and I believe Paul is saying here, no. After Paul lists those special privileges that we read about and the promises that God gave to them in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, we read in verse 6 that Paul starts with a statement that says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Now this was important as Paul was writing this letter to the, the church at Rome, which consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. As they were reading this, those would have been very direct words, and it would have hit home with many of the Jews that were there in Rome. It wasn't because of their rejection. It wasn't because of their descent. All of this, it's what we're going to see here and what we're seeing in chapter 9 is that our salvation is based upon what God has done. Not what we can do for Him, but what He has done for us. God has a plan. God has purpose. God has promises that He has given. Paul then 
He used Abraham and his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, to prove his point. Ishmael was, and who was, that representative of the work of the flesh. That was Abraham, one of his sons. It was was God's way of showing a picture of a person trying to get into right standing with God by the work of the flesh. And Isaac we know was the child of promise. God made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham and he made a promise to Sarah. And God says, it's Isaac that I have chosen. It's Isaac, this promised child, is the one at which I am going to work out my plans and purposes through. That's God's choosing. Paul also used Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, to prove another point. That God's choosing was not according to works, but of him who calls. In other words, God's calling and election of Jacob over Esau was according to God's election and not according to their works or their merit. In other words, these two sons, these twins, were still in the womb. There was no chance for works or merit in their life. And God had already chosen Jacob. He already picked and chose out Jacob. God's choosing of Jacob, the younger. It should have been the opposite, but God chose the younger, Jacob, over Esau, the older. While they were still in the womb, I believe to really make a point to you and I, that it's not possible, it's not based upon works, it's not based upon merit, but it's all based upon God's choosing. God switches things up, doesn't he? Quite often in scripture. What we would think and how he would do it, God says, no, that's not my plan. I'm gonna do it this way. And it really demonstrates who God is, God's sovereignty and who he really is. We finished with verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Strong words. People have been tripped up by those words. People have gotten it all out of context. Remember, I shared about the context and keeping things simple and keeping things biblical. But really what we're reading here could better be translated that, or Esau, I have not preferred. You see, God doesn't hate anyone. God loves sinners. Aren't you glad? It was while we were yet in our sin that Christ died for us. He loves us in the, in the state of a sinner because it doesn't change God's love towards you. He doesn't have those that he hates and those that he loves. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I shared that this verse is better understood as a hate by comparison. Hatred is not spoken of here as an absolute hatred for a person, but it's relative to a higher choice. In other words, God says, this is who I choose, Jacob. The basis for Paul's answer to this question 
could be found in three words. It's the title to this morning's message. God's purpose, God's plan, and God's promise. And we need to know that God has a purpose in all that He does. Did you know that? Did you know that in your personal life? That everything that God allows to come your way in life, God has a purpose. God has a plan. God has promises that He has made to you and I. Even if you can't figure it all out, even if you can't put two and two together and figure out what God is doing in your life, God has a purpose in what He allows to come your way. This word purpose, we'll call it God's purpose in the, in the Greek, it, it's the word prothesis. It's defined as a setting forth of a thing, a placing of it in view. You know, like the showbread that was placed there in the temple. Remember the, the 12 loaves that were laid there out by the priest one time a week on the Sabbath. they come in and they would refresh the table with new loaves, 12 loaves that were all corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was really God's purpose to display in that temple these 12 loaves that corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, what does all that mean? Well, all of that, if you just take it down, take it down, it all is going to lead to the cross. It's all going to lead to God's final end in His purposes for man. Everything that God does, even those 12 loaves that were laid on that table, they all had a purpose. God didn't just say, I want to feed the priest there with it. He had a purpose in that bread. We read in uh, the book of of Exodus in chapter 9, verse 16, speaking about God's purpose. When God was bringing the plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, we read this, But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Did you get that? Indeed for this purpose... That God was going to show His power. That His name was going to be declared. Why did God do that with the Pharaoh of Egypt? To declare His name of who He is. That He is on His throne. He is in control. God's purposes. In Job 42, verse 1 and 2, Job answered the Lord and said to the Lord, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You see, Job acknowledged with all of his trials and difficulties that God's purposes were being worked out. That takes some faith, doesn't it, on your part, on my part, to believe that God's purposes are being worked out even in your life. In Romans 8.28, many of us have this verse memorized. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. You see, if you're a child of God, there is nothing that comes your way. There's nothing that God allows to come into your life that is not going to work for your good and for God's purposes in you. 
our text last week in verses 10 to 12. This is how it reads. This is a reminder. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the what? That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said, of, said to her, the older shall serve the younger. This is God's way. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is God's promise. In Ephesians 1.11, the Apostle Paul writing to the church there, said, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, God's in control of everything. It's his plan of salvation. It's his redemptive work for this world. We don't make it up. We don't call the shots. This is God's plan. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. When was that? Before time began. In other words, God already had all of his purposes and plan and all of this worked out. Yes, he did. It's important for us to know that. God also has a plan for this world. Jew and Gentile. It's really the redemption of all of his creation. God created the heavens and the earth. Placed Adam and Eve in the garden. Man fell. And as a result... God had in place already, before the very foundations of the world, a redemptive plan. What is redemption? It's the process or the act of redeeming a person, a sinner, that has fallen. You see, this plan that was forged in heaven with the Godhead, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it was already worked out. We read in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him, and it says, before the foundation of the world. If you're saved today, if you know that you're saved and you know Jesus Christ, you were chosen before the very foundations of the world. And then he says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. His will, God's will. In 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days for you. Foreordained before the foundations of the world. 
In other words, God didn't just create Adam and Eve, place them in the garden, and then one day he was scratching his head saying, they messed up. Look, I gave it to them perfect. And they messed it all up. And now I've got to fix it. No, he already had it worked out in the council of heaven. It was already foreordained that his son was going to come and be the sacrifice, the redemptive price for man's sin. This word redemption is actually found throughout Scripture uh, either by the word redemption or by the word deliverance. And deliverance speaks about the releasing of someone by a payment of ransom. When we are released from our sin, from that bondage, to redeem somebody, it had to have a price attached to it. It's the price of letting somebody go free that had to be paid. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 9, verse 15, it says, And for this reason, which is speaking about God's purpose, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. That's God's plan. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that's speaking about the law, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. God's purpose, God's plan, and God's promise. Wow, incredible. God had all this worked out. That's what's so amazing. That's what's so amazing when you look at the nation of Israel and that God is not done with Israel today. Because He's still working out His purposes and plan for them. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This redemption that we have, that price that was paid, was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that would have been sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin, to really give us deliverance, to set us free, was His blood. Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Amazing. God has also given us promises, church. The word promise or promises in the Greek, it, it, it speaks always of divine promises or blessings that God has given to you and I. It's especially connected with the benefits of our salvation as Christians. There's only actually two times. It's actually in the book of Acts. We see that this Greek word for promises of God, it's always in it's always speaking of what God's blessings are to you and I. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard a politician promise something <laughs> and then not come through? I mean, that, I know it's rare, but, you know. Or have you ever made a promise and then not fulfilled what you promised you said you would do? I think we could all say we have made promises that we have not been faithful to fulfill. What if God could renege on his promises? 
with God, it'll never happen. You know why? Because His Word tells me that He can't and He won't. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, why is it impossible for God to lie? Because it's actually against His very nature. It's actually against the very makeup of who God is for Him to lie. That's why it's impossible for God to lie. It's against His nature, His makeup, who He is. In Numbers 23.19, we're told that God is not a man that He should lie, nor the Son of Man that He should repent. Has he said and will he not do? It's asking a question. Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Asking another question. The answer to that is yes, he will. That's why we trust God at his very word. When you read your Bibles, hopefully we do. You see, that's faith. That's believing God. When you open up your word and you read the promises of God in his word, do you believe them? Do you stand upon them? What God has said, do you hold to it and and hold it to heart? Even if you can't see how he's going to work it out. The word promise, according to dictionary.com, says this. It's a declaration that something will or will not be done, given, etc., by one. It's a declaration. God has declared certain promises to you and I, and God will fulfill those promises. Back in Romans chapter 4, it says, For the promise that Abraham would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made void, and the promise is made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, and not only to those who are of the law, speaking about the Jew, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, that's speaking of you and I as Gentiles, who is the father of us all, Jew and Gentile. These promises that were made to Abraham, they eventually became reality to you and I as Gentiles. God's promises to us. Romans 4.20, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And then last week in Romans 9, 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. God told Abraham, here's the promise. Through your seed... Your your seed is going to multiply like the stars of heaven. And here's the promise that came from God. And Abraham got a little bit into the flesh, didn't he? He said, well, you know, let's, let's work this out with Hagar. And God says, no, that's not the way I want to do it. 
I want to do it as I told you, and I came and I promised you. And he says, I'm going to fulfill this promise through the one whom I said that I would fulfill the promise. It's important for us to stand upon things when we don't see how they're always going to work out. Have you ever tried to get into the mix and tried to work it out on your own? And then you realize you messed it up, and if I would have just waited on the promise of God, that it would have been all right? Important lesson. Remember Paul's statement last week in verse 6 and 7. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That's what God's plan was. Sometimes people don't like God's plan. Maybe you were one at one time. I don't like that. Well, I'm not going to believe in that God. If, he, you know, if, if that's the way he does things, I'm not going to believe. As if because you don't believe the way God has planned it, that it's going to change God's plan. You see, God's plan's going forward whether you say you like his plan or you don't like his plan. God is the one that is in control. He's the one that laid it all out. When a Jew is told that being a Jew is not enough to get him into heaven. When somebody is born here in the South into a Christian family, and they have all these roots, you know, they always like, oh yeah, my father was a grand preacher, my, you know, and they go through all this stuff. And, and, and then you say, well, that's not enough to get you to heaven. When a person lives their whole life doing good works, charity, doing all these things in their life. And somehow in their mind, they're thinking, you know what? God will receive this. This will be sufficient. This will get me to heaven. And you tell them that it doesn't. What does that do? Was your pride ever pricked when somebody told you because you, you know, were water baptized, that wasn't enough to get you to heaven? Or because you try to keep the Ten Commandments or do this or do that and it wasn't sufficient? You see, people that are of the religious sort, that pricks their pride. The Jews had their pride pricked quite often because Paul was telling them it's apart from the law. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that you can be saved. Some have even argued or raised the question. When we read what we're reading here in Romans chapter 9, they've raised the question... Is God righteous in His choosing or His election? Some of you have questioned the righteousness or the justice of God. Oh, if He was a loving, just God, why, you know, and people do that quite often. They question the righteousness of God. In reality, when people do that, when you maybe did that, at one time, or if you do that now. If you question the righteousness of God, what you're really calling into question is the very character of God himself. You're calling his character into question. You see, out of God's natural attributes, what makes up God? Uh, What comes out of these natural attributes of God comes love. God is love. Long-suffering, 
That's, a, that's a, another attribute of God. He's merciful. He's kind. He's faithful. He's just. And He's righteous. That's God. That's who He is. Who are we to call into question? Why have you made me like this, God? Why have you set this plan in motion for salvation this way? Why would you still have a plan for Israel when they reject you? I don't like that. They rejected you. I'm living for you. And, I, and, they re, you know, and I think the church will replace it. No, God has a plan. Look at verse 14. I hope we get through this. Paul says, in light of what was said in verses 16 to 13, some will ask this question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? What's the answer there? Certainly not. Or God forbid that you would think this way. People that question whether or not God is fair in His choosing. And who he wants to raise up to show his power in, and who he wants to use to, to be his deliverer, that's God's choosing. That's what God does. Looking ahead at chapter 10, verse 1, Paul wrote this Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but look what it says. If you're looking there, but not according to knowledge. But they being ignorant of what? God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to what? To everyone who believes. We've already learned about the righteousness of God leading up to chapter 9 that is given to our account. But the question might be asked, is there any unrighteousness with God when it comes to His choosing and His election of man? The word unrighteousness is found 18 times in 17 verses in Scripture. The unrighteousness of man is normally the topic of the verse. There's actually only two times in Scripture where the word unrighteousness makes reference to God. In Psalm 92.15, the psalmist wrote, to declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did you get that? It's the word no. There is no unrighteousness in him. But let me ask you the question, do you believe that? Do you believe that there is no unrighteousness in God? That he is just and fair in all of his dealings with every single human being that has ever been birthed into this world? I believe that he is. That's why I have strong confidence on that day of judgment. The other place is in Zephaniah 3.5. It says, The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. 
Every morning He brings His justice to light as He never fails. Great verse. No unrighteousness. God never fails. In the next seven verses of chapter 9 now, Paul's going to answer the question, is there unrighteousness with God? Paul starts by giving us two contrasting figures. One of them is Moses. The other one is Pharaoh. To show that God's justice in dealings with mankind, his choosing, is based upon God's mercy and his compassion that he does it. Paul, in a sense, uses a double rejection here. Uh, to, uh, by giving these two contrasting figures. Remember that Moses was the man of God, the redeemer of Israel. Right? He's the redeemer of God's people. And then wicked Pharaoh. I mean, you couldn't have two greater opposites, could you? Paul's conclusion, or in verse 15 we read, excuse me, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Paul's conclusion in verse 16 now is that God's choosing is based upon his mercy not upon an unrighteous act of God, as some people might want to question or call into question. Look at verse 16. So then, because of what he said in 15, so then it is not of him who wills, speaking of man's will, nor of him who runs, speaking of man's striving or man's effort, but of God who what? shows mercy. Do you see the word mercy and compassion being used here numerous times? Whenever you see numerous times, sit up and take note. We're talking about mercy of God, the compassion of God that makes and how he makes his choice and what he does and his plan. When it comes to your salvation, there are two words that you need to know as a Christian. You need to know them well. The two words are grace and mercy. Those two words. Salvation is by grace. And it's according to God's mercy that you're saved. Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Most of you know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By God's grace, you're saved. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul wrote that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, who He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace... We should become his heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace and mercy is why we're saved. In other words, Paul could make the argument here. 
If it's God's mercy that determines God's choice, then it cannot be by man's will or man's effort that God chooses. He doesn't base it upon, well, you know, you're a lot better of a person. You know, you're doing a lot more for my kingdom than that person. And I choose you based upon your merit or what I... No, that's not God. It's His mercy and grace that He chooses, not based upon merit and what somebody can do for God. Psalm 145, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's slow to anger, and He is great in mercy. That's the very nature of God. Again, in verse 15, we read, For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. That's God, because He's God. Paul quoting from Exodus 33.19 in this verse. Exodus 33.19 reads this way, Then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Speaking of Moses. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's God. In the song of Moses in Exodus 15, verse 13, Moses wrote, You in your mercy, God, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. And so here Moses is even acknowledging that it was God's mercy that he led them out of Egypt. That it was God's mercy that he redeemed Israel. It was God's mercy that he guided them to the promised land. It wasn't based upon their lineage. It, wasn't, it, was, it was based upon the promises and the plan of God for Israel. His mercy was extended towards them. Verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, Here's the contrasting person. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, there's the purpose of God again, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Speaking of the Pharaoh, this Pharaoh of Egypt. Therefore, look at verse 18, because of what he just said. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Speaking about Pharaoh's heart. Just like the Pharaoh, Israel also exists for a twofold purpose. God will show his power in them, that his name is going to be declared throughout all the world. How many people still speak of that Pharaoh that would not let God's people go? And God showed himself powerful. He made his name known to the children of Israel. He says, I'm going to make my name known throughout all the world that I am God. And I said, let my people go. And he actually hardened and strengthened the hardness of Pharaoh's heart when he said no. I'm not going to let him go. You see, God's hardening 
of Pharaoh's heart was because of his refusal to submit to God's will. It was his refusal, really, of God's grace. When Moses said to the Pharaoh, let my people go, he refused in his heart. And because of that, his heart was further hardened. It was already hard. But God even strengthened him and made his heart even harder in that refusal of God's will. That's the same thing that happens when a person rejects Christ. They reject, heart gets a little bit harder. They reject again, a little bit harder. And you can only do that so many times and your heart gets harder and harder. It's that hardening of Pharaoh's heart that's similar to Paul's words in the first chapter of Romans where Paul talked about the fallen nature of of man. And it says, after it goes through this whole list of all these sins, that God gave them up to uncleanness. And then it says again, it says, for this reason God God gave them over to vile passions. And it says a third time, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Paul made it very clear that if you go down the path of rejecting Christ, you go down the path in the course of sin, and you reject and you reject, there is a point at which God says, I give you up. I give you over. I, I, I know, I'm no longer going to strive with you. You see, man has a will, and I believe in free will. We're going to see in, this, in the 11th chapter of this letter that Israel's disobedience is going to lead to the salvation of the Gentiles. Isn't this incredible? Think about it. That even in the rejection that Israel had for Jesus as their Messiah, that God was then going to turn it around and bring the Gentiles into his plan, show the world that my plan is for the Gentiles also. And he's going to use the nation of Israel, whom he first gave all of his promises and covenants and all those things too, he's going to use them. What an incredible plan. Could you have figured that out and set it up that? I don't think so. Could you bring it to completion? I don't think so. You see, God has an eternal plan for Israel. He also has an eternal plan for the Gentile nations of this world. God in mercy will show a divine act of deliverance for his people. There's going to be a remnant of Israel that's going to be saved. Because God says, I made promises to my people and I'm going to fulfill them. Whether they are living in disbelief today or not, I am going to save a remnant of my people And he's going to bring it full circle. He's going to use now the Gentiles to bring about a jealousy in the heart of the nation of Israel so that many of them are going to come to know Christ during the tribulation period. God will also, in his mercy, use a Pharaoh, an object of his wrath, for his merciful purposes. You see why God would God will even raise up somebody as a Pharaoh 
And you, you know what God says? Oh, and we've read this as we've gone through the book of Isaiah. God takes and uses Israel's enemies to bring wrath upon his own people because of their rejection. And then he turns around and judges the enemies also. You see, God is, in a sense, using Pharaoh for his purposes of mercy, but Pharaoh was judged. We read on in verse 19. First, there's this twofold objection. You will say to me then, you remember how I said that one question always leads to another? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted God's will or his will? How can you find fault then? I mean, if God's choosing, doing all, you know, who can find, you know, who can find fault? If God's will is going to be worked out in everything, then it, then does man still have a responsibility? I believe the answer to that is yes. Paul's answer to this is by using another example that most of us can relate to. This is what I like about it. He gives the example of a potter. The potter is who? God. The clay, that's us, man. So he uses this potter, like sitting at a potter's wheel, forming and shaping this pot. Now, if the potter is making an ugly pot, making an undesirable looking pot, Can the clay say to the potter, I don't like it? And then it just falls flat. No, it just keeps looking ugly and the potter is fashioning it the way that he wants it to be. In verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay? Yes, he does. For from the same lump, and that same lump, some have thought is, speaking of man's predicament of sin, from that same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. In other words, God's on his throne. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And God is working all of this out according to his good pleasure. Paul uses this to say that just like I used the Pharaoh and even my people who rejected me to show my sovereignty over all of this world, to show my creation, to show my power, to make my name known by different vessels, whether it's Moses, whether it's the Pharaoh, I've got these vessels that I am using to display who I am to this world. God does have a unique plan, doesn't he? For both Jew and Gentile. Aren't you happy? How many Jews do we have here today? I don't know. Maybe none. We're all Gentiles probably. And aren't you thankful that God had a plan for us in this? In verses 22 to 29, Paul lays out God's plan of salvation. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Look what it says, verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath, 
and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, underline that, which he, God, had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, that he might make his power known to all this world, the riches of his glory, and not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Paul is bringing in. Remember the church at Rome there consisted of Jew and Gentile. Many of those Jews came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They needed to know these truths. Paul here was quoting from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. He said, and that reads, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, he's speaking about the Gentiles, you and I, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Isn't that incredible? You once were not my people, and now you are. I brought you into my plan, Gentiles. Hosea 1.10 Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. You know what the mystery was? That the Gentiles even have part in God's plan at all. This wasn't even revealed until the New Testament. Every Jew didn't even believe that a Gentile had any promise of salvation. But this mystery of Christ that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 3, he says, which in, in other ages was not known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy prof- apostles and pro- prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. That's God's plan for the Gentiles. Paul says, I also have a plan for my people, Israel. Look at verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. He's quoting Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. He says, For though your people, O Israel, through your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction 
uh, the destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. God had a plan and has a plan for Israel. Verse 28, for God will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. You know, when it comes to the end uh, of this world, in the last seven year, the tribulation period, where God is going to be dealing with the nation of Israel. Do you know that God is going to eventually intervene into the affairs of all of that? Because if it weren't, man would completely destroy and wipe himself out. It's the mercy of God that God is going to intervene. And he's going to save a remnant of his people during that time. Verse 29 and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath, which literally means the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. We would have just come to an end as a nation of people. But look what God has done. Brought Israel back into their land. You know, and, and, and now look what's going on in Israel today. And then God has a plan. Just read ahead in your Bibles. Go all the way to the book of Revelation. Read, you know, read Daniel 9. Look at the plan that God has for Israel. God is going to save a remnant of his people. We finish this chapter with Paul declaring that both Gentiles and Jews must obtain righteousness by faith alone. Look what it says. What shall we say then? Asking a question. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained, attained to righteousness, even the righteousness by faith. That's how the, the Gentiles came into this relationship. But Israel, look what Israel now, verse 31. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness had not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Do you see that? God gave them their law. They rested in the law. They took a lot of confidence in the law. But then it came to the place where God says, that law will never save you, my people. But they rested in it. They tried to obtain their righteousness through it. But they didn't do it by faith alone in Jesus Christ. You see, every Jew today, they don't have a special pass into heaven. Do you know how they have to come? By faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Verse 33, and we'll end. We did make it. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I don't care how tough life is for you. I don't care you know, what's going on in life. If, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will never be put to shame. You'll never come to the end of your road and say, you know what, I don't know if it was worth it. You're going to stand before God someday. And you're going to know, you know what, all the sufferings of this time, all the things that, you know, it's not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, 
please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.